today I want to talk a little bit about the word turning. Now, this is not one of those top ten words that you see from time to time you think about Scripture, but it actually is a very important word. And uh, one of the things about my wife is she is a quilter, and she likes to make quilts. And there's one on the screen that you can see now. This is one that she made. Uh, and one of the things that she likes about uh, Kerrville is there is a quilt store, a quilt shop. Uh, is it called Creations? Uh, how many quilters do I have in my midst today here? Got a few other hands going up and everything else. Well, my wife, anytime you want to you know, go to Creations, give her a call, and uh, she can be down here in about three hours, and she would love to go fabric shop. Well, I don't know the right terms. You're, you're going to learn pretty quickly that she knows what she's doing with quilting. I have no idea what's going on and all the different things taking place, but she loves to quilt. What I like is uh, I like college basketball. I don't know if I have any other college basketball fans uh, in the crowd here, but about my favorite month out of the year is the month of March. Does anybody happen to know why March would be my favorite time of the year? It's called March Madness, and it is called that for a reason. Well, a few years ago, there was a big game. Uh, and if you follow bas college basketball in the NCAA tournament, you know it starts off with roughly 64 teams, and they keep whittling away 32. Then they get to the sweet 16. Uh, and then the next round is the Elite Eight. And so by this point in time, you know, the best teams, they're the only ones left. I mean, 56 teams have packed their bags and gone home. There are only eight teams left playing. And there was this one day where two teams, the two teams were Duke and Kansas. And if you know anything about college basketball, those two teams are royalty in college basketball. Uh, sometimes they're called the Blue Bloods. You know, the creme de la creme of college basketball programs, and they were going to play each other. So I was excited because I was going to watch this game. Now, my wife is a bit of a college basketball fan. She was born in the state of Kentucky, raised in southern Louisiana, but born in Kentucky. And, you know, in Kentucky, they take their college basketball pretty seriously. And so I thought she would want to watch the game, Duke and Kansas. And when she saw the two teams playing, she goes, ugh. Uh, she did not want to watch, as a Kentucky fan, two teams that she cannot stand. She didn't want to watch the game, so she, she said, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go quilt. All right, she has a little room in the house that is her quilt room, so she was going to go quilt. So I'm watching this game, and it turns out to be a classic. It's going back and forth, back and forth. Both teams are good. Both teams are well coached. Both of them have good players, and it's, you know, one punch from one team, and the other team responds, and it's just going back and forth, back and forth, and it's going down to the wire. Eventually, it's going to go into overtime before one team wins over the other team. It's a classic game. And I'm enjoying this game because it is college basketball at its best. When all of a sudden, toward the end of the game, it's not over yet. We're in the throws. We probably got a tie game, one-point game, something like this. I hear this word, Rod. My name's Rodney. But every once in a while, I get called Rod. And when I get called Rod, that means my wife, Laura, wants something. And then I'm listening. I say, what? Right back to her. And she says two words. Come see. Come see what? There's a basketball game on. It's a very good game. Come see what? She says, I want you to come look at my quilt. And she has this little board up, and I don't know what it works, but you can put the patches or the squares, whatever the right terminology is, you can sort of, before you sew it all together or whatever the term is, before you put all, you can put the pattern up there, and it sticks. 
but it's not quite put together yet permanently here. And so she wanted me to come in and look at it. I don't know a bad quilt from a good quilt. I, I don't know. But I am watching something that I do know and that I do love. And all of a sudden, here comes this call. Come see, take a look at the quilt I am making. And there is this great basketball game on. And I am scratching my head here because i got to make a decision. You know, do, do, I, do I go and look at a quilt and just kind of nod my head, say, beautiful, and I, you know, it, it looks good to me, or do I continue to watch this great basketball game? Now, the experts in relations, uh, they have some terminology for all this. And what they'll say is, my wife is not just making a comment, that she's actually making a bid. And a bid is more than just a word or two or some kind of statement here. It's an official request. And she's actually making a request of me. And so now I am at that decision point, that choice that I have to make. Am I going to respond positively or negatively? Am I going to ignore the request or am I actually going to listen to the request? And I guess the language you can say, am I going to turn toward her or... Am I going to say, uh, the game will be over in a few minutes, and after the game's over, then I'll come look at your queen. What am I going to do? Am I going to turn toward, or am I going to turn away? That's my choice. Now, in an article about relationships that I have found very, very helpful over the years, especially the past few years, they will talk about people who are really, really good at relationships and those who aren't so good at relationships. And those who are good, they call masters. And those who aren't so good at relationships, they call disasters. Right? You got the masters and you got the disasters. And uh, they bring people in, their marriage, you know, they're kind of into marriage therapy and everything else here, and they've done with thousands of couples over the years. And what they have noticed is, is that what couples do, they, they kind of live in this place and they can be observed and watched and everything else, is that couples are constantly making bids. And the disasters uh, respond positively or turn to their spouse uh, only 33% of the time. That's not a very high rate, is it? And so if your spouse is calling out to you and only one out of three times do you respond by turning toward him or her, your success rate, they notice, that for that couple to be married six years later, they said the odds were very, very much against it. And what they said was, is because what that communicates when you turn away or don't respond positively is that you hold your spouse in contempt. That's their language. The masters, on the other hand, responded by turning toward these bids 87% of the time. So you don't even have to get it right 100%. All right? In my world of grading papers, that's a B plus. If you make a B plus, an 87 out of 100, you are a master when it comes to relationships. We all have bad days, right? We all have those moments where maybe we're, our mind is somewhere else or something that's going on that's not really good, and so we don't always get it right. But if you can get it right 87 out of 100 times, 8.7 out of 10, then you are a master. Because what that communicates is that you care about the other person, and you care about the relationship, and you are willing to invest in that other person, whether you know a thing about quilts or not, you respond in a particular way to the bid that your spouse, or if it's a friendship, 
to what a friend is doing, that you respond to them by turning toward them. That's their language. Now, for them and these researchers, it's all about marriages. But I think it also can apply quite easily to our relationship with God, to spiritual matters as well. Because this turning to and turning away, I find it fascinating. Long before these researchers ever came along, this language is in Scripture. In the passage that we had just a few moments ago, God is actually making a bid to Moses, trying to get Moses' attention. If you know the story very well, Moses has run away from Egypt because he was wanted for murder. He has found a wife, and he is now living in the wilderness. And he has this nice, quiet little life away from the hustle and the bustle of the Pharaoh's palace and all the executive decisions and where people with power are making those power decisions. He's got it kind of nice. You know, he got a decent father-in-law, got a wife and everything else here, got a job. He's a shepherd out there in the middle of the wilderness. Nobody's bothering him. He ain't bothering nobody. Life ain't that bad. Then all of a sudden, God makes a bid in the form of a burning bush. Now, Moses has options. He could say, that's interesting, and keep on walking. He could turn around and run the other way because he might have some idea of what's going on here, and the last thing he, wanted to, he would want to do is check it out. But instead, he says to himself, and here we get this inner, you know, kind of inner dialogue going on in the head of Moses, I must turn aside. And so if he's just walking along, what that means is he must turn toward. And it's exactly what he does. Now, he may wish at some point or another he hadn't turned toward. If you read Exodus 3 and 4, I mean, he's like, oh boy, I shouldn't have done that. Nevertheless, he turned toward. And the beginning of a relationship starts here. Because if I keep reading into Exodus 33, one of the things that I learn, and again in Numbers chapter 12, two other places in the story of Moses is God and Moses speak face to face. Two times we're told that. And if you're speaking to somebody face to face, what does that mean? It means you are turned toward them. You are turned toward them because you are face to face. Now, if you read the storyline carefully, things don't always go swimmingly well between God and Moses. And there are a lot of disasters that happen along the way. Nevertheless, there is something about this relationship where they keep turning to each other. And that's the way it's described. Now, in Psalm 85, let's get a little bit more real, right? Because how many of us are going to get a burning bush? And sometimes we need to think about this as not just little old me, but us. So Psalm 85 puts it in a plural. So we might even think about the Kerrville Church of Christ. Are we going to turn toward or not? Just me, myself, and I, but how about us? And I like the language in the psalm because God speaks in it. And when God speaks in it, God might be making a bid for this particular body of believers. And notice the language. What does God speak? God speaks peace, peace to his faithful. And then what's that next little phrase? To those who turn to him. When God speaks, do we turn away or do we turn toward? And what I like about this 
is that it presents it in the plural, to his faithful ones, to us. And sometimes God's calling is not to a, an individual on a mountaintop in the midst of a wilderness. Sometimes it's to a body of believers. And sometimes we need to slow down and be still and know that God is addressing us, especially in difficult times. But just like we have some masters, we've also got examples of disasters in Scripture as well. And the quintessential disaster is Solomon. So if I go to 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, you know, we got a problem on our hands. And notice the language that is used to describe Solomon's growing apart from God. His heart was turned away. His heart was turned away. Now, in some ways, I think this is very similar in the language, because Solomon's a king, right? And the Pharaoh is simply another way of referring to the Egyptian king. And we know that the Pharaoh had a hard heart, and maybe it's not so different to have a hard heart as it is to have a heart that's simply turned away. It's a heart that's not pointed. It's not aligned properly. That's what it means to have a hard heart. And the Pharaoh had a hard heart, but notice Solomon, the king of Israel, who, by the way, we do know who his principal, he has a bunch of wives, doesn't he? But we know he has one that tends to be more important than all the others. She's never named, but she is mentioned four times in the story of Solomon. Does anybody happen to know who she is? The Pharaoh's daughter. Kind of interesting, I think. When you think about a Pharaoh who has a hard heart, what that might mean is simply a heart that is not inclined to listen to God no matter what. And now all of a sudden, Solomon has a heart that was properly functioning when I go back to chapter 3 and learn about the wisdom that Solomon got. But by the time we get to chapter 11, it's not working so well anymore, is it? It is turned away. And the lesson for us is this. We can start in one place. It doesn't necessarily mean that we will end up there. It's kind of like a relationship. When that couple, and they're dressed in their tuxedos and wedding dresses and everything else, and everybody's excited, and there's just this great joy and smiles and everything else here, and we come back a few years later, and it's not the same. Because relationships take work, and relationships require that we continually, at least 87% of the time, turn toward. But now, all of a sudden, Solomon has turned away. And sometimes it's not just an individual who turns away, but in Isaiah 65, we learn that a people can turn away. And one of my favorite passages in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 65, we have this passage where God says, here I am, here I am, to a people who did not ask for me, to a people who did not seek me, and a people who did not call on my name. We sang a song, a hymn, just a few moments ago, didn't we? They had some of this language. But in this particular case, they did not ask, they did not seek, they did not call. Even though God is saying, I was standing there saying, here am I, here am I. They weren't looking for me, and they weren't calling for me. This people had turned away, had turned away from God. But God doesn't give up. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 45, we have another very beautiful passage that I think our New Testament writers really, really liked a lot. And they will call that this about this salvation. And so in Isaiah 45, verse 22, the very first line in this particular oracle is, turn to me and be saved. Turn to me. To me, every knee shall bow 
and every tongue shall swear. Have you heard of some phrases like this in the New Testament? This verse gets picked up. And to me, if you were to ask me about what, I don't know exactly what all heaven's going to be like, and I know we get a variety of pictures and little glimpses. I think ultimately it's beyond us, but here's what I think. I think heaven is a place where everything is properly aligned. We're properly aligned. In other words, our knee is bowed to the one true power and authority, not to other would-be powers and authority. Our tongue is confessing as Lord, the one who truly is Lord, not all the other lords that we put in the place of the Lord. And our heart is turned toward the one who deserves our affections. We live in a world that is out of alignment. And this is a glimpse of what it means to be properly aligned in relation to the Lord. But none of this is easy. And I want to end with some stuff from the Gospel of John. Just a few little passages in the Gospel of John. Because there are challenges, right? We listed a few. What's going on in Afghanistan? What's happening in Haiti? What's about to hit Louisiana? COVID. All these things that we can name. There are challenges. And so in the Gospel of John, we have questions that are are raised along the lines. And we have this guy named Nicodemus who turns toward Jesus in a way by... He visits him at night, and he has these questions. How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can a person enter a second time into his mother's womb? How can these things be in John chapter 3? A little bit later on in John chapter 6, Jesus is going to use this phrase, I am the bread of life. And in the midst of that little I am statement, that I am the bread of life, we have this weird sort of bizarre sort of discussion about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And when people heard those words, they began to say things like, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then when disciples, those who were sort of following along Jesus, heard these words, this teaching is difficult. Who could accept it? And so the Gospel of John at the front end acknowledges that there are going to be challenges. There are going to be things that we might find difficult or hard, nearly impossible to accept. They're there and they're real. But then in the same passage in John 6, after these others are walking away, after they are turning away from the Lord, Jesus turns to them and he says, are you going to turn away too? And in John's gospel, this is Peter's high water mark. This is the place where the disciple Peter gets it right and gives us some beautiful words. Lord, to whom can we go? To whom else can we turn? Maybe another way of putting it. In other words, everybody else is turning away, but Peter says, no, 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 no. You have the words of eternal life. We will turn to you, regardless of how difficult things may be. Even if we find some things impossible to accept, where else can we turn? We will turn to you. Which leads me to my final verse for the day. It's in John 20. We're going to stay in the Gospel of John. And John 20 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you can recall, a few weeks ago we talked about hope, and our hope is in the resurrection. But it doesn't mean the resurrection is easy. And it can be difficult to accept, right? I mean, we don't really see hard, tangible evidence today 
Nobody's walking around that we know that died and now is resurrected, right? We got to put our trust in this. And so here is Mary scrambling around. She's already gone there, got a couple of disciples. A couple of disciples have already run. One went to one stayed at the edge, another one went in, but they both have all gone back, and so it's just Mary left. And there's these two uh, angels who are there, and she's asking them, where did you put the body of Jesus? And they don't really answer. They ask her a question, but she, they don't really answer her. And then she has this encounter with this gardener. If you'll just tell me where you put him, I'll go and get him and bring him back and dress him back up and put him back in the tomb if you'll just tell me where you put him. But notice in verse 14, she did not recognize or realize who the gardener was. At what point does she recognize that this gardener is Jesus when he calls her name? When Jesus says Mary, Mary turns toward. She turned to him. Here's the deal. There's a lot of things going on that are difficult and hard to accept. And sometimes the forces that we are encountering seem like they are the ones in charge. And sometimes it's even easier to either have no God at all or to have simply an impersonal universe. You know, the universe is doing this. Because a universe, well, it can't expect anything of you, right? But here's the claim of Scripture from beginning to end, that we don't live in simply an impersonal universe. There is a God, and this God entered our world and lived and dwelt among us. And this God died and was buried and was raised. And here's the kicker. This God knows your name. This God turns to you and says, here I am, here I am. And here's the question. Will you turn to him? That's the question. And oh, by the way, when my wife said, Rod, come see, I got up out of my recliner and I went and I looked and I made some comment. I know not what I said but I turn toward. Turning toward is not easy, and it's a day after day after day process. But my prayer for you, not just as an individual, but also you collectively as the church here in Kerrville will consistently and constantly at least 87% of the time turn to the one who knows you by name.